Our God, we seek to know your word so that we may know you. You speak to us in scripture that we may know you. Help us now to learn how to be guided by that truth into a deeper knowledge of you, a closer communion with you, a richer communion with you, as you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, buckle up. This is a very, very full sermon and very, very full of Scripture. Many of us struggle to put truth into action. Getting the concepts maybe not so difficult, plugging them into our lives more challenging. This passage helps us to do just exactly that. We've been studying together uh, in our Bible Basics Revisited series, the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. Here, the author of Hebrews shows us uh, how to make glorious application of the truths we've been learning about the person and work of Jesus. Hebrews speaks straight to us. Um, the questions that they have are the questions that we have. The forms of the questions are different. In, in the day of the readers of this letter, the first readers, they're all about Moses, they're all about angels, they're all about the tabernacle, about the sacrifices offered to the tabernacle, the priesthood. We're all about Freud, Fauci, experts, top men, we're all about social media, we're all about likes, we're all about finding peace in this crazy world. The questions differ as to their form, but the essence is the same. The needs are the same. How to know God truly. What to do about this weight and burden of guilt that we feel. How to know real life and real hope. And the answer they received is the same answer that we receive. It's the same answer they and we both need. Jesus. In a word, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer to our deepest needs. So the author presents here, uh, as he does throughout his letter, in a very uh, deliberate and logical procedure. First, he lays out the truth, and then he bids us to act on the truth. And several times he warns about the price of ignoring or drifting away from the truth. Well, that's exactly what he does in this session. He lays down the foundation, and then he calls us to act on that foundation. And this will call us to enjoy rich communion with God at the throne of grace. So let's start digging in. First, Roman numeral one. His call, as always, is grounded in truth. And we'll see that in verses 14a and 15. His truth, his call is grounded in truth. And the first aspect of the truth that he brings us to gaze on is the truth about Christ's work. Capital letter A, the truth about Christ's work. In verse 14a, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens. So first, obviously, we're faced with his priesthood, having therefore a great high priest. Now, we're helped by remembering the difference between priests and prophets. What's a prophet? A prophet is someone who speaks to the people for God. A prophet is someone in whose mouth God puts his words directly so that he speaks for God to the people. A priest is one who represents the people before God. He approaches God on behalf of the people and offers uh, sacrifices for their sin, sacrifices that express their thanksgiving and praise, and also offers prayers and intercessions for them. And it's that aspect of Jesus' work, Jesus' person, his office as priest. He represents his people before God. 
That's what he is as a priest. And he calls him a great high priest. Now, this is actually very striking because it's redundant the way he does this. Uh, the Greek language has a word for high priest, archerus. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the phrase that's used to describe the high priest uh, uh, several times is hakohen hagadol, which means the great priest. So what he does here is he combines the Hebrew way of saying it and the Greek way of saying it, and really, in effect, calls Jesus high priest twice. He's the great high priest. Now, I don't think that that's a mistake that he does it. He does it because Jesus is a high priest like no other. His greatness is vastly, in fact, infinitely beyond compare with any human priest who ever came from Aaron's line, from the loins of Levi. Jesus' priesthood is of a very different cut. Now, he's a great high priest, but you might ask, well, how is he a priest at all? What's the tribe from which priests come? What tribe is that? Levi. And what, what tribe did Jesus come from? Well, now, there's no priest from the tribe of Levi. How, can, how is he a priest at all? Well, the writer later will answer that question from the psalm that he quotes several times, Psalm 110. He uh, takes us to Psalm 110, verse 4, where we read, Yahweh is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus' priesthood is not a Levitical priesthood, not an Aaronic priesthood. It's a, here we go, Melchizedekian priesthood. <laughs> that's, a, that's a word you kind of have to take a breath before you say it. It's a Melchizedekian priesthood. After the order of Melchizedek, it has no beginning, it has no end. It's vastly far above the human priesthood that they knew. So he is a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And, and what is it that makes him great? Well, he's already laid the foundation for that. In Hebrews 1.8, he quotes a verse that says, Thy throne, O God. This is the person of Jesus. He is God. And no high priest could say that. No human high priest had a divine nature. And also, just the very fact of his priesthood. Look at chapter 2. We'll be looking at Hebrews a lot. You'll definitely need your Bible. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. And read the whole rationale with me about Jesus' priesthood. Verse 14, Therefore, since the children, he's been talking about the elect children of God, so therefore, the since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, flesh and blood, a human nature, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation. What's that? That's a sacrifice that addresses the wrath of God. And to make such a sacrifice, he had to be a human being because he had to lay down his life in a bloody death. But it had to be a perfect human life, but nonetheless a human life. And so Jesus, who is God, took on a human nature for us and for our salvation. That he might make atonement, make propitiation for our sins. But not just that, he says, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. 
He took on our very nature, not the appearance of our nature. And so this Jesus is exactly what we need. He says that in chapter 7. Take a look there and we'll, we'll gaze at uh, verses 25 through 28. That's a terrific little clip. For it was fitting for us. Excuse me. Um, yeah, I'll start with 25. Therefore he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He had no sins to offer sacrifice for, and the sacrifice for his people's sins was himself, not daily, but once for all. So this is our great high priest. The law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, that oath in Psalm 110 we just read, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He is indeed a great high priest. A high priest after the order of Melchizedek, great because he is the son of God, great high priest because he offers himself uh, as, a, as a merciful and faithful high priest for the propitiation of his people, their sins. So that's his priesthood. Secondly, what about his passing through? We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Well, I'll just let the author explain what he means by that. You're in chapter 7. Turn to chapter 8. He'll explain for us what he means by passing through the heavens. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point in what is being said is this. We have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens... Verse 2, a minister in the holy places and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not men. So he's not like all the Levitical priests and Aaronic priests serving an earthly tabernacle that's a copy and an echo of the realities in heaven. He's in heaven itself. He's passed through the heavens itself, and his ministry is carried on in the very presence of God, not in a picture of the presence of God, which is what the tabernacle was. It was a picture of what it would be to approach God. He says more in chapter 9. Take a look at chapter 9 and verses 24 through 28. For Christ did not enter holy places made with hands. That's the earthly temple, the early earthly tabernacle. Mere copies of the true ones, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy places year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So his passing through the heavens, he passes through as priest and he's able to pass through because he has offered the perfect sacrifice. He doesn't go to heaven vanquished and beaten by having died on the cross. He goes to heaven as the victor 
having accomplished the work of God fully, made perfect atonement for the sins of his people. And he goes on to carry on the work of priesthood, representing them before God and pleading what? The sacrifice of bulls and goats? No, the sacrifice of himself, the perfect sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice. So we see his priesthood, we see his passing through. Third, let's consider his perfection. This great high priest did a perfect work. We read a passage that alluded to his sitting down. Remember, the letter starts that way. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, after saying uh, things about the person of the Son, the writer says in verse 3, having accomplished, having accomplished cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That sitting down, I remind you, that's a big deal. And it's only possible because of the first part of that clause, having accomplished cleansing of sin. And he opens that up more in chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. I'll just remind you of them. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. And every priest stands. You can underline that word because it's important. Stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That's, that's the priesthood of every human priest. But he, now here's the big contrast, having offered one sacrifice for all time, not many sacrifices day after day, one sacrifice for all time, having done that, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now there's the big contrast. Every priest stands daily ministering. He sat down. Why? Mission accomplished. It is finished. The job is perfectly done. He offered the perfect sacrifice. And now he just waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. By that one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So there it is, his priesthood, his passing through, his perfection. I really want to squeeze in a, a fourth there, our joy. What is our joy? No, our joy is in the first words, having therefore. Having therefore. That this wondrous high priest I just described to you is ours. Who ours? Pastors? No, belongs to every believer every born-again believer who's exercised repentant faith in the Lord Jesus. We have him. Like you might say, oh, I've got a pain, but I've got a really good doctor. Oh, that's good that you have a doctor. You have a relationship with him. But it's a distant relationship. It's a once-and-again relationship, not this relationship, as this passage will remind us. We have him. We have him all the time. It's a present active participle. We have him. This priest is ours. Now, I tell you, it's Everything that, that follows rests on this. Uh, nothing glorious is, is true of us if this is not true of us. If I don't have him as my high priest, then I don't have any of these blessings. I don't have forgiveness. I don't have assurance. I don't have access to God. None of that is mine if I, have if I don't have Jesus as my high priest. But all of it is mine if I do have Jesus as high priest. So now there's, there's the big difference that I, I would faithfully put before you. It's one thing, and it's a fine thing to want to come Sunday after Sunday and hear great things about Jesus Christ. Who wouldn't? I mean, it's a great thing to hear about. He's a wonderful person to hear about Jesus Christ. And 
to compile a lot of knowledge about Jesus Christ and maybe to be able to answer many questions. I'm sure many kids know verses and many kids know true things about Jesus Christ. That's not my question right now, though. My question is, do you have Jesus Christ? Well, not if you, not whether you have knowledge of Jesus Christ. Everyone who attends any any biblically faithful church has knowledge about Jesus Christ. Not my question. My question is, do you have Jesus Christ? Can you say with the writer, having, therefore, such a high priest? And that's a one-on-one individual thing. doesn't matter if your wife has him. doesn't matter if your husband or your parents or your best friend has him. It only matters, do I have him? Do you have him? He speaks to people who have him. Everything else rests on that, on that issue, that question. So this is the work of Jesus. Now let her be. Let's look at the truth of Christ's worth. So who's this great high priest? Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. And what do we see of worth there? Well, first we see the name Jesus. That is the dearest name in a sinner's ear. There is no dearer name for a sinner to hear than the name of Jesus. And that speaks more of his preciousness to us than it does of his preciousness to God. God doesn't need a Savior. We need a Savior. Jesus is or should be a dear name because the name means Savior. And what do we need? Well, we don't need a helper. We don't need an example. That would just double our damnation. We don't just need a teacher. All those things may be in due course, but the first thing that I need is a sinner. I need a Savior. And that's Jesus. That's what that name means. He is Jesus. And though that's not the name that speaks His dearness to God, He is Jesus to us by gift of God. John 3, not 16, but 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God did not send his world, his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He is Jesus to us because God sent him. God the Father sent him to be Jesus for us. He's Jesus, the writer says. He's Jesus, the Son of God. Ah, now that bespeaks his dearness to God. Jesus bespeaks his preciousness to us. The Son of God bespeaks how much he means to the Father. And it goes right around to, to remind us just what a precious gift he is to us. What a precious thing it is. What an amazing thing it is that the Father sent him. I take your minds back just briefly to Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, the angel of Yahweh finds Abram, who's just finally had this son he's been waiting for for years and years and years, this promised son. And what does the angel of Yahweh say to him? He says, Abram, Abram says, here I am, Abraham at this point, verse 2, then he said, take now your son, your only son whom you love. Those words are not accidental or casual. Your son, your only son whom you love, take him, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. And Abraham goes to do it, and he takes him, and he's about to sacrifice him. And what do we read in verse 12? Then he said, do not stretch out your hand against the boy and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only one, from me. 
So the ultimate proof of his fear of God, his, his, his ultimate commitment to God, is that he was willing to offer his son, his only son, his only son whom he loved to God. Now, this becomes very poignant when we realize who's speaking to him? The angel of Yahweh. Who's the angel of Yahweh? God the Son. Here's God the Son saying, well, I know that you fear God because you're not holding back your only son who you love. Well, what was God the Father going to do? Paul catches this, and he says just as much in Romans 8, 31 and 32. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And then he says, he who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In effect, he says, he didn't spare his son, his only son, whom he loved for us all. How much does God love you, Christian friend? So much that he did not spare his son, his only son whom he loved. Jesus, the Son of God, that bespeaks his preciousness to God the Father. Jesus bespeaks his preciousness to us sinners. So there's his work, there's his worth. And now let's consider the truth of Christ's warmth. W-A-R-M-T-H. What kind of priest is he? What kind of a high priest is he? We do not have, this verse says, a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like as we are, yet without sin. Well, on the basis of what I'd said up to this point, we might have asked ourselves, okay, he's my high priest, but what kind of a high priest is he? I mean, he's, he's flawless, he's perfect, he's sinless, he's God, so... I mean, is he anyone I can relate to at all? Is he anyone who can relate to me? Or is he cold and distant like a, like a Vulcan, you know, or, or like, a, like an android? No emotions, no feelings, no real humanity, lots of knowledge, but no real point of emotional or experiential connection. You know, like the little boy who got scared every night and his parents tried and tried to figure out ways they he'd always come in and wake him up because he was afraid in the dark and and so one night his, his mother said look just you just need to to pray and you just need to ask god for jesus to be with you and trust that jesus is with you and 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 you should be free from your fears and they'll go to bed and he comes and wakes him up at three in the morning again he's afraid and his mom says well didn't you didn't you know that jesus was with you and he said Oh, yeah, but I was kind of needing someone with skin on. But the thing is, Jesus does have his skin on. Jesus is human forever. There, there is the resurrected, glorified body of Jesus Christ somewhere alive, sitting at the right hand of God, ruling over the universe. The high priest we approach, that we can approach anytime, anywhere, because he's God, is also a human being. And what kind of a human being? Well, he's a warm human being. He's a sympathetic human being. The writer tells us so much. Remember, he is God and man. He's not an angel. He's not an automaton. He's, he's God and man. He's not an uncaring administrator or official. His knowledge of humanity, friend, his knowledge of humanity is not because he knows everything, though that's true, but it's because he's human. He doesn't know it just by omniscience. He knows it by experience. Having experienced humanity, still experiencing humanity. 
So he's not someone who cannot sympathize with us. And, and what I, I get some static now and then because I, I tend to phrase myself uh, negatively. I, I say, uh, so don't you want that? Or are we not going to do this? Are we not going to watch that? Well, he does that, so I'll take some comfort in that. Maybe that'll be my plea from now on. But he, he says, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness. So what's he saying? We do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. He's able to sympathize. He can sympathize. Now, understand this, the wonder of this. It's not just the facts and figures about our feelings that he understands. It's the feelings themselves. He, he, he knows the pain of being human. He knows the strain of being human. He knows the suffering of being human. Not from having read about it, but from being human. There's a sweet little song called, Does Jesus Care? And I just remind you of the first verse and refrain. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the days go, grow weary and long? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. And I commend the rest of the hymn to you. It is very sweet. And what's the grounds and the depth of this sympathy he has? Let me, let me tell you a little bit about that word sympathy before I move on any further. It's the word sympathesi, which comes from a, um, a preposition, syn, which means with, and um, patheo, or pasco, which means to suffer or to experience. To suffer pain, to experience something, to know deep, hard feelings. And so he's able to know these deep, hard feelings. He's able to feel pain with us. That's what it means that he sympathizes. He feels our pains with us. He shares our miseries and our suffering. So the, the grounds, he says, is because he is one who's been tempted in all things like as we are, yet without sin. Now let me, let me face squarely the question, could Jesus have sinned? Well, to understand that, we've got to remember he is how many persons? One person. How many natures? Two natures. One person with two natures, one of which is God, one of which is human. Can a human nature taken in isolation sin? Yes, that capability is part of being human. But we must immediately remember Jesus' human nature never existed in isolation. He didn't find a human nature somewhere and pick it up. The first second that that nature existed, it existed joined with the divine nature as the person Jesus Christ. So, is, as to his humanity, he could know temptation. But Jesus the person could never have sinned because Jesus is the God-man. He could not have sinned. But his human nature was absolutely fully subject to all of the pains and miseries of temptation. And as I've pointed out to you in the past, you might think, well, yes, but he doesn't know it like I do. That's true. He doesn't know it like you and I do. He knows it far worse. Why? Well, because you and I buckle. Let's say if temptation goes from 1 to 10, you and I buckle, well, if it's a really good day, we buckle at 3. <laughs> That's a really good day. That's why God spares us and, and usually cuts it off at two and we think we've had a really bad day. But, but we've just gone up to two or three on the scale. Every temptation with Jesus went to 10, went to 10, went to 10 because he didn't buckle. 
He got the... You and I probably have never, I mean, I don't know, obviously, but I would imagine you and I have probably never been within five miles of actual Satan. We probably get low-level functionaries, you know, <laughs> that deal with us. We, we get, you know, we, we, we get uh, recruits. But, but Jesus actually faced the arch-tempter, the, the, the Satan himself, and more than once. And yet every time, uh, without sin, the worst Satan had to bring, worked like a charm every other time, not Jesus. So yes, he hears and he feels us. And our prayers move his great heart. What, was the, what have we learned in the Gospel of Matthew is the most frequent emotional thing said about Jesus. That he's moved with compassion. Yes, he's angry. Yes, he's joyful. But the most often we read that he's moved with compassion at people's misery. And so is he moved with compassion towards us in our misery? Yes, it exactly says so. This is exactly what this says. And we were back in Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18. I'll just read the next verse. That he had to be made like his brothers to be a merciful and faithful high priest. And then verse 8 says, since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the help of those who are tempted. Well, that word suffered, that's posco. That's the same verb that is brought back in 4.16 with the preposition, sum patheo, sum pasco, to suffer with. So he suffered, so he's able to come to the help of those who are tempted. And we have this sympathetic high priest. Do you have this sympathetic high priest? If you do, what glory? What glory to have such a one? So this is grounded in truth, And what he says to us, Roman numeral two, is gripped by trust. The way this truth comes to us and is ours is we hold it fast. We hold it to ourselves. We grip it. So he says in verse 14b, therefore, since we have such a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, here it is, let us take hold of our confession. Well, what does he mean? What's this confession? It's kind of a combo word. It means two things in one. It is both the faith we confess and our confession of the faith. It's the faith we confess and our confession of the faith. To, to confess something is to say the same thing. To say, well, this is what I believe. I'm, I'm admitting to you. I'm agreeing. This, this statement of faith is my statement of faith. But I also confess it. I say it out loud. I make confession of this confession. And so when you think about it, you can't have one really without the other. You can't confess a faith if you don't have a faith to confess, right? But if you have a faith to confess and it's yours sincerely, you need to confess it. And both those ideas are built in here. Hold fast to our confession means hold fast to the faith we confess and to confessing that faith. Both those things. Clear? Oh, thank you. You see it in uh, the two other uses of the noun in the letter. I'll just read them to you. Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. So he is the apostle and high priest whom we confess, and we confess him. Hebrews 10.23, Let us therefore hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So both the confession that grounds our hope and are confessing that hope. Hold fast, he says. 
It's explained in some other verses. I'll read to you for time's sake, but do jot them down. Romans 6.17, Paul talks about our conversion in these terms. He says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. So that's another way of looking at what what conversion is. It's coming to Christ, yes, but we know Christ as he's taught to us. He's taught to us. As Paul says, uh, you did not so learn Christ as to live in sin, as the truth is in Jesus. Yes, we're we're taught of Christ and we believe in Christ. Uh, We're delivered to that pattern of teaching. And then Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I'm delivered to a path, a pattern of teaching, and I confess my faith in that pattern of teaching. And Jesus, just to add to it, Mark 8.38. Mark 8.38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, in other words, unwilling to confess, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. You can't, you can't separate having the truth from confessing the truth. And he calls us to take hold of it, to hold it fast, to have a hard grip on it. So that's what is this confession. Now let's talk about how do we take hold. Letter B, how do we take hold? Well, the way we take hold is by faith. And we, when we remember what faith is, then we see all the better what it is to take hold. And again, this is where if if a Christian doesn't understand what faith is, well, he's not going to understand very well how to take hold of the faith he confesses. So our reminder might remind you of what we've studied together many times, just to use common words, the three elements of saving faith are knowledge, assent, and trust. Or as I say it, recognizing, realizing, and resting. You can't have saving faith if you don't know what you're being called to believe. So first of all, there's the facts of faith have to be in view. But secondly, you can't be saved if you don't think, believe that the statement of those facts is a true statement of those facts. So you assent to the truth of it. You, rec- you, you realize that this is a truth you're being told, but that's still not saving faith. Saving faith involves the third element, which is resting, which is trust, which is, yes, I understand what I'm being told about Jesus being a Savior. Yes, I believe He is the Savior, and I trust myself to Him to save me. I look to Him alone. I call on His name alone. I've got no plan B. I've got no backup. Uh, There's no break glass in case of emergency. He's the glass. He's the backup. He's the whole alphabet plan. He's plans A through Z. He's it. I rest myself on Him. So if that's what saving faith is, then what will it mean to take hold of that? Well, it will mean to have a deepening understanding of what the facts are. It will mean to have a more deeply firm conviction of the truth of those facts. And it will mean a more wholehearted resting on those facts. Do you see that? There we go. that without that, there will be no taking hold of this confession. So let's talk about how to do that in practice just briefly. How do, I, how do I do that in practice? How do I increase my knowledge of the facts, my conviction of the truth of the facts, and my degree of resting on those facts? Well, it's given to us in Psalm 1, 1 and 2, which I'll read to you because I, I imagine most of you know this well. If you don't, do read it. 
Psalm 1, 1 and 2 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He doesn't do that. What does he do? But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. He's delighted in it. It affects our affections, and he meditates in it. He studies it, dwells on it, learns more about it. I remember a guy, he, was, he, had, he had issues. He used to come to a Bible study I taught decades ago at a, at a Baptist church, and he never brought a Bible. He, he was too cool for school. He, he never brought a Bible. And when asked why he did, never brought a Bible, his answer was, well, I read it once. Well, there you go. That is not what a Christian says, and that's not what a healthy Christian would ever say. He meditates in it day and night. Don't you know enough about the Bible yet? Answer, no, 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 not even close. He meditates day and night. Why? Because he's delighted in it. He's born again. He's got a new heart that delights in God's Word. That is how I personally take hold of this confession. I've got to forever deepen my grasp of those truths and my conviction about those truths. Jesus says just as much, John 8, 31 and 32. Again, you've heard these words many times. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, what does that mean? If you continue in it, if you meditate in it day and night, if you learn it more and learn it better, and believe it more and believe it better, and rest on it more and rest on it better. And so this is just what Jude says. You could look there, just next to uh, the other side of Hebrews, just before uh, Revelation, Jude, verses 20 and 21. He says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. This is an individual daily pursuit if we're to be where Scripture, where God calls us to be. Individual daily pursuit. But what about publicly? Well, this letter is written to a church, and he often uh, points them to their fellowship, and he does that in Hebrews 13, Again, I'll read that to you. Hebrews 13, verses 12 through 15. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the gate, the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the one to come. Through him then let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Now in the context, he is talking about church fellowship. In the context, saying Christ went out all by himself with the reproach of all his generation on his shoulder. And so he's saying, yeah, I understand. If you cling to your faith in Jesus, you will bear the reproach of all your generation, just like he did. So if you want to be with him, and pro tip, you want to be with him, go out to him bearing that reproach and gather together with this people who likewise have gone out to him. And in your gathering together, he says, verse 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. It's one of many ways that remind us that the, the point of church is not just hearing a, a biblical sermon, though it is that, but it is also our 
bodily, our corporate singing of praises and joining our hearts in prayer and confession together. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us our purpose. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? To what practical output? So you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim those excellencies. So confess it and confess it. Hold fast the confession and confess the confession. Hold fast to the confession of the faith that you embrace. So now here's what he does then. He's laid down this truth and he's told us the importance of grasping and clinging to that truth. And now he's going to come to the practical application of that truth. As I am doing, taking the truth we've studied about the person of Jesus in our previous sermons and saying, here's where it comes down to practice in our lives. Glorying in treasures. And we're glorying in treasures, by the way, won for us by the work of this all-worthy Christ. The work of this worthy, warm high priest issues in this call. This call to glory in the treasures he's won for us. And first, I point us to, well, he points us to, God's open door. God's open door. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So let's just start with that first word. Therefore, you see? Therefore. This call to draw near rests on all the truths that we've just looked at together. It rests on who Jesus is and what he did and what he is to us. Without that, forget drawing near like this. Forget that. But with that, this is ours. This is yours. This is the possession God puts in our hand. This is the, this is the gift he gives to us, his open door. So I'm just going to take it apart one by one. Start with that uniquely southern phrase that I first heard only when I moved here. Do what? <laughs> uh, but uh, in a different sense. Do what? what? What are we supposed to do? Therefore, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Well, let's talk about that verb. It's an interesting verb, prosercomai. There's lots of ways to talk about, uh, there's lots of verbs that talk about coming or approaching or, you know, moving from point A to point B. The particular nuance of this word is that it's the idea of coming right up to someone or coming right up to something. I mean, it's not, you can't do this and follow from a distance. You can't do this and just be moving in a general direction. It means to come right up to someone. Let me give you three examples. Just note them down. You know these. Matthew 9.20. We've looked at them in our Gospel of Matthew study. Matthew 9.20. There's a woman who'd suffered from a hemorrhage for 12 years, and she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. There's our verb, prosercomai. She came up. Well, how close did she come? close enough to touch his garment. She wasn't, there was a whole crowd, crowd that was going in the same direction. There was a whole crowd that was following him, but not her. She went right up to him, close enough to touch his garment. That's the verb that we're being called to put into action. Come right up to the throne of grace. Come right up to the throne of grace, close enough to touch it. Uh, Matthew fifteen thirty, and large crowds came to him bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So 
They came right up to him. How close? So close they could throw, that's the literal Greek text, they could throw their sick ones down at his feet for him to touch and heal. They came right up to him. One more, Acts 8.29. The Holy Spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. <laughs> did, he, did he follow the chariot at a distance? No, he went up close enough that he could talk to the Ethiopian eunuch about what he was reading in Isaiah 53 and lead him to Christ. So come right up, and that's what we're being called to do. Come right up, he says. Let us come right up with confidence to the throne of grace. That's the word. What's the tense? The tense is present, present active indicative. This is not just calling us to do something and then move on to something else. This is calling us to do this as a, as a habit, to do it over and over, to make it what we do for the rest of our stay here on earth. What do we do? We come right up to the throne of grace. How often? All the time. Morning time? Yep. Noon time? Sure. Night time? Oh, you betcha. All the time. Keep coming up, he says. And what's the heart of the idea here, this coming right up to the throne of grace? Well, this is what, we've looked at this many times from many angles. This is what the Bible's about from Genesis 3 right to the last chapters of the Bible. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 21 and 22. What, what is it about? In, in, well, in Genesis 1 and 2, God created man to be his viceroy over creation in his image. And in Genesis 3, man rebelled against God and made an impenetrable gap and barrier between him and God. A, a, a gap and barrier that could be bridged only by an act of God and by nothing that man could ever do. But God bridged that gap. And that's what the story of redemption is. The whole story of redemption from the nation of Israel, as God says in, in Exodus 19, being brought on eagle's wings to me, to myself, he says, it's all about the saving God reconciling his elect people to himself. And how he does it. Through the whole Old Testament, he does it through pictures, 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 prophecies, and promises. And what does he do in the New Testament? Through a great high priest. He actually does redeem his people to himself. And it's all about reuniting his elect to himself. His fallen, straying, lost people. Reuniting them to himself. And so we are objects of his redemption. And so we are called to that relationship that he has made actual, not just made possible, but that he has actually accomplished by the work of Christ. That he has, think of what God had to do to make it possible for you to come right up to him. I mean, really, you don't have the time now, but sometimes sit down and really think about what God had to do to make it possible for you to be able to walk right up to him without fear of judgment and damnation. And, and the answer starts back in eternity past. If, if you start back with Bethlehem, you haven't gone back far enough. <laughs> what, what God had to do to make this possible goes back before the world was even created and goes through all the Old Testament prophecies, types, and pictures and goes through the birth of Christ, the abuse of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the ascension of Christ. The sending of the Holy Spirit. All the things God had to do so that he could say to you, bona fide, keep coming right up to the throne of grace. That's the heart of it. And what's the implication? Oh, friend, I, I want to ask this straight to your conscience. 
to lay down any barriers you have just for a second. Then you can put them right back up if you want. But hear this one very nakedly. What good is all the knowledge I'm piling up if I don't yearn to do this? Every last thing I've learned about Jesus, the Bible, and everything, what good does it do me if I don't hear this and say, oh, thank God that I can, and yes, I will. Yes, I will. What does it say about me if I don't yearn to be close with all he's done to make it so that I can be close? And what should I do about the answer to that question? So, do what? Come right up. How? Well, he says, with boldness, of all things. I mean, saying to do it, that in itself is remarkable. But that he says, with boldness, the Greek word parousia, it literally means saying anything. And that's the picture of the boldness. That, that you, you're not walking on glass, you're not daintily selecting each word, but you come as you are, and like Psalm 62 says, you pour out your heart before God. For the Christian, fellowship with God definitely is a come-as-you-are situation. So the saving plan of God has made me an adopted child of God, clothed with the righteousness of God in union with Jesus Christ. And in that way, I can come up before him and I can say everything that's on my heart, fearlessly, boldly, assured that I'm welcome. Why am I welcome? Because I am such a great guy, not ever for a second, but because Jesus is who he is. He looks on him and pardons me, as we just sang. So, that is the word, that's the sense, that's the heart and the implication. That is how, with boldness. Now we ask, where? Where am I supposed to go? Well, I'm supposed to go right up to the throne. Now this throne, what is this throne? Well, I first need to remind you that in itself, to a sinner, this throne is an absolute terror. If you're not in Christ, this is the last place you want to be. Psalm 97.2 says, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Righteousness and justice is the foundation of his throne. And what am I? unrighteous. I am not in conformity with the law of God. As I am in myself, I'm unrighteous. And I'm going to go up to a righteous throne and be judged? Not on your life. Not without absolute terror. Not willingly. But you know what I say not willingly, but I just need to tell you it's going to happen regardless. Every one of us is going to stand before the throne of God at some point. We have no say in the matter. Revelation 20, verse 11 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. There's no hiding. Eventually, everyone will stand before this throne. But that's what it is to the person outside of Christ. What is this throne to the person inside of Christ, in union with Christ? We read it right here. What's the throne? It's a throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. Now, if Jesus is the sweetest name in a sinner's ear, then surely the sweetest noun in a sinner's ear is grace. 
And for us, this is a throne of grace. And it's, it's not the deepest theology, but it's not wrong to say that grace means God's riches at Christ's expense. That's not a good etymological definition of the word, but it's the truth of the word. That's what it is. It's God's riches. So you, this is, is this free grace? Yes, it's free grace. Well, it's free to me. <laughs> but it cost Christ everything. Everything he had to give. It cost him everything. So it's free to me. And so that's why the throne is a throne of grace, because he's a great high priest who offered himself to uh, propitiate the sins of his people. That makes it a throne of grace. And I'm bid by God himself constantly to come up to this throne of grace. Why should I come? Well, frankly, I come because I'm always needy and God is always giving. Grace speaks of the free giving of God, of of his free self-giving, of his free giving of his blessings and his benefits to his elect. And that's what I need. And I've often prayed exactly this prayer. I I have often prayed exactly this. I've said, there is nothing you have that I don't need. Just as plain as that. There is nothing you have to give that I don't need. I never come to God anything but needy. Yes, I come grateful, and yes, I come penitent, but I always come needy, don't you? I mean, isn't it good to know that it's a throne of grace? That's just where a needy person wants to come, to a throne of grace. And this is a throne of grace. And it's a throne of grace because Jesus has opened the way to us. By his person and his work, he's opened the way to making this a throne of grace to us. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Glorious, wonderful words, Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in hope of the glory of God. Absolute assured confidence because we have God's word for it, resting on Christ's work for it. So there is God's open door and now God's open hand, letter B, his open hand, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Free mercy. Now, what is the meaning of mercy? Here, here very simply, is, its, is the meaning of mercy. It is helping, in, helping the miserable. It's giving help to the miserable. There's, there's no meaning to mercy if there's not misery. Mercy always presupposes a backdrop of misery. And so being told that I should come to this throne of grace that I might receive mercy assumes that I'm what? Miserable. I'm in a miserable situation. So you see how perverse it is if it ever arises in our heart, and this is the sort of thing our enemy might suggest to us, that we really shouldn't pray until we have everything together. Can I share something with you? <laughs> if you wait to pray till you have everything together, finish this sentence for me. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. No, the assumption is we'll come miserable because otherwise we wouldn't need mercy. Mercy ween- means we're miserable. But, but notice the verb. What do we do, mercy? That we may purchase mercy? That we may earn mercy? That we may achieve mercy? What does he say? Receive mercy. Ah, so if I receive mercy, then it's given to me. Why is it given to me? Because it's a throne of grace. 
Why is it a throne of grace? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. So it means that when I come, I come in need and I come in mercy. In, in, sorry, in, mis- in misery. Whether misery of guilt or fear or regret or despair, whatever the misery is, that's just the time to go. And to any thought of, well, this is not the right time, then challenge that thought and kill it with this verse. Now, I need mercy, and God says, come and receive mercy. And then he says, timely grace. He says, find grace to help in time of need. Well, find suggests to me that it's there. I'll find it there. You know, I ask my wife, where can I find this or that? And her knowledge is just encyclopedic. Well, I, I think it's uh, three cans back on the third shelf at 45 degree angle. She knows where everything is. It's, it's amazing. And so I go there and I find it. It's there. He says, we will find grace to help in time of need. Where? At the throne of grace. We'll find grace to help in time of need. So that it's grace means that it's all, it's God's all-sufficient, free love gift, and that it's in time of need. Now, I need to talk with you about that a little bit. In time of need. Now, I want it before I need it. Amen? So I, I don't panic. I don't feel tension. I don't feel, you know, nervous or afraid or anything. I'd like to have it before and in a way that I can clearly recognize, but I'm not promised that. That's not God's, that's often not God's way. Wouldn't it be nice for Israel if they had crested that hill running away from the Egyptians and seen that the Red Sea was all parted for them? Wouldn't that have been nice? Where are they when God parts the Red Sea? At it. <laughs> they are at it. They, are, they, have, they, have, they can go no further, and it's not parted. And there's the Egyptians. That's when God parts the Red Sea. And that's often God's way. It's not before my need. It's right when I need it. And often when I greatly need it. Remember God and Gideon. Gideon didn't want to do it anyway. Period. He didn't want to do it. And so then he has all these people. And he said, well, these aren't very many people. And God says, you have too many people. <laughs> and so he does what God says. And he looks and he says, well, no, I really don't have. Uh, and really, I, have, don't, I don't have many people now. And God says, you still have too many people. This is the way God often does it, because this is how God shows his glory and his grace, and this is how God gives us exercise in trusting and depending and resting on him. So this calls us to submissive, God-fearing trust. What is that attitude? It's the attitude that is assured that it's coming and recognizes that God, I've got to tell you, he's going to do it when he wants, the way he wants. Now, if you really think about it, would you want it any other way? And your first action is, yes, I would. But, you know, as you often say, I've often said, if, if I had God's power, I would do things very differently. But if I had God's wisdom, I'd do them exactly the same as he does them. And this is the God we come to. He's God. And it's always best for him to do it his time and his way. And I, I just want to close this portion with a testimony to both. I have, I've never claimed to be anything other than a slow story. You will bear me witness. You who've been here for 11 years. Is this not true? I've never claimed to be anything other than a, a slow study, right? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Jacob. And it's true. And, and after, after it, it took maybe 
getting close to 48, 49, maybe 50 years of being a Christian, I finally learned when I come to a place of panic or despair or woe and misery to ask myself, how many times in the last 50 years have you felt like it was just about all over? Have you been in despair? Have you felt like you can't go on another step? You're done. Have you been in panic because everything's about to go to heck in a handbasket? How many times have you felt that way? With absolute conviction. Absolute conviction. How many times? Probably hundreds, if not thousands. And where are you now? I'm still here in Christ. That's the thing I most wanted when I got saved, just for Him to never lose me. And here I am, by God's grace, still in Christ, still serving Him such as I can, still walking with Him such as He enables me to do. Here I am, through all of those. Through, you might say, many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. So have you. And so I look at that and I say, well, and then He's going to take me and bring me where He wants me to be through this too. And I can trust Him. He won't do it my timing. He won't do it my... Truth be told, many times He does do it our way, doesn't He? Many times He's just... He does it so much we don't even realize it. But other times, yeah, no. But He always comes through His time, His way, and that's sufficient. We just studied in in Sunday school, and if you don't come to Sunday school, you really should. Why why don't you? It, It would be a great thing to do. We just studied in Acts 27, where Paul was told by God that, well, they would all survive the, the boat trip. That's what he was told. And how did that work out? <laughs> they crashed into a reef, they got stuck, the boat was completely broken up, and they had to paddle to shore on planks. But they survived! <laughs> Just exactly what God said. So, you know, like I say, God, God being with me means I'll get to where he wants me to be. Maybe not in a Cadillac. But I will get there his way. And this, that's what this is. Grace to help in time of need by his judgment, not by mine. And it's assured. I can give testimony of that. So now in closing, Christian, God calls you and me to come near and to enjoy rich communion with him at his throne of grace. He calls us to do that, to do it boldly, to do it all the time. God has literally moved heaven and earth to make this actual and open this door to us do you come will you come earnestly often hungrily with passion in your heart will you come non-christian you will stand before god's throne apart from christ you will stand before god's throne in terror and hopelessness and doomed but the good news is you're being offered christ one more time I call you to Christ. Christ calls you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You hear the gospel call one more time. Will you come? Repent and trust in the Lord Jesus. Call out on him. Look to him alone. And if you need any help, there's many of us, including me, would be very happy to talk with you about that. But the issue, Christian and non-Christian, will you come? Will you come? That's the call. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this rich word from you. Thank you for everything that's in it. What a glory. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that these words will come home with power to every believer here, that we will all of us be brought to seek you more ardently, more passionately, 
and uh, more incessantly, more boldly, because of what Jesus has done. And for all the lost here of any age, any place in life, Father, may the Holy Spirit keep these words before them. May they hear Christ's voice calling them in the gospel and come to him and find life. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.